Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Um, and we are aware we've probably got lots of new listeners. Um, we've, Dominic, we've done, we've done an episode on Ukraine, haven't we? We've done four episodes on the recent history of Russia. Um, yeah. And those are episodes that have very much been generated by what is in the news headlines. But... We just wanted to tell new listeners <laughs> that not every episode we do is necessarily prompted by what's going on in the news. Uh, and in fact, our aim is very deliberately to sweep as far and wide. That's right, Tom. We've done everything from the Andertals to the 1990s. We've done episodes on um, on on pa- sort of prehistoric paganism. We've done episodes on the Roman Empire, um, on on sort of um, the Beatles on. The- Dinosaurs, yeah, the Beatles, on, on the oil crisis, top, on the lots of top tens. We've done them. Um, top ten, top 10 units. Un- yeah, top ten, <laughs> top ten mistresses, top ten most disastrous parties. So, um, something I hope for everybody's taste. Uh, and if you are a new listener and you would like to sample um, some of the other episodes, you'll find links to them. Uh, everything from uh, Alexander the Great to Watergate in the program description. Um, yeah. wherever you get your that's right we've got links you get to some podcast. of our most popular episodes and if you then go back into our feed you can listen to all the previous episodes and if you find you like what you hear you can always join the rest is history uh club at restishistorypod.com and that is unbelievable value and you get all kinds of treats and benefits don't you tom you get sensational benefits <laughs> you do indeed right uh we've probably promoted ourselves on our own podcast for long enough so on with the show to mexico Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. In room 44 of the National Gallery in London, there hang the fragments of a large unfinished painting by the French Impressionist Edouard Manet, entitled The Execution of Emperor Maximilian. In the centre stand the members of a firing squad, their rifles levelled. On the right, an officer is making the final adjustments to his own rifle. And on the left, well, the only hint of the condemned man is his hand, that's all we see of Maximilian von Habsburg-Lothringen, Emperor of Mexico. The rest of him is missing. And Tom Holland, there is a metaphor there, isn't there, for the extraordinary, colourful, strange story of this, this ill-fated man? It is. And, do you know, I mean, I, I kind of vaguely had an awareness of it, principally, I have to say, through, through the Manet painting. And reading up about him and discovering more about him, it actually reminds me a bit of General Gordon. Yes, there's definitely you know there's, there's so the the plot is I mean this is a guy who is a Habsburg archduke and he goes off to Mexico and I don't think we're giving any spoilers well you no spoilers because you've already given it away I yeah. mean he ends up in front of a firing squad so the, there is a kind of slight parallel with Gordon except that this story has a, a distinctively Latin American quality yes um, and it comes across absolutely brilliantly uh, in a new book. The Last Emperor of Mexico um, by Edward Shawcross, which I thought, I mean, it has, I don't know if you've ever read the um, the Louis de Bernier novels that he wrote before Captain Corelli. They're a, a kind of riff on the theme of, of Latin American magical realism. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, Thomas Aquinas turns into a hummingbird, that kind of stuff. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, And this story is so odd. It's so bizarre. It's so kind of Baroque. It's very it's, magical realist, isn't it? I, and it's so brilliantly told that it is a great privilege for us to have the author with us on the show. Uh, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. We both enjoyed this book so much. And it is an amazing story. And as I said, you know, this is a story that probably isn't widely known. So let's kick off with a question from Harry Lloyd Prentice, <laughs> who asks, who was the last emperor of Mexico? Oh, well, for now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um well, thank you for that fantastic introduction. So the last emperor of Mexico um, is Ferdinand Maximilian, uh, and he's a Habsburg. Uh, but of course, he's the younger brother or a younger brother of Franz Joseph, the emperor of Austria. Uh, now, Maximilian is a man who's absolutely convinced of his destiny to rule. Uh, and it's only by a, an accident of birth that he's not the one who's going to be in charge of, of the Austrian Empire. Um, 
Now, Maximilian, he's, he's an interesting character and very different from his brother. They're very close when they're young. But when Franz Joseph becomes Emperor of Austria in 1848, the characteristics that, um, that separate them become more important. So Franz, Franz Joseph is very autocratic, rigid and conservative. Maximilian, much more outgoing, gregarious and liberal. And what do you do um, with a younger brother who's outgoing, gregarious and liberal? You keep him far from power. So, so that description of um, the, 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 the slightly rigid, dutiful elder brother who, who goes on to, to attain a royal position on the throne and the slightly dreamier younger brother who ends up going to, to America. Dominic, does that yeah. remind you of... Uh... Tom and James Holland, right? Um, Surely <laughs> no, it's William and Harry, isn't it? Oh, really? I would never have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but the difference is that well, we'll we'll, exp- we'll explore some of the differences. But yes, so so just to put this into context, um, Maximilian was born in 1832, I think, so two years younger than Franz Joseph. Is that about right? Um, That's absolutely right. Yeah, uh, Franz Joseph. Yeah, the Habsburgs are not quite what they were, but Franz Joseph still rules this 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 sort of great patchwork of Central Europe, including a bit of Northern Italy, um, and meanwhile, so so Mexico, I suppose. And, and the Spanish Empire had once been a Habsburg possession, but obviously that's a long time in the past. And what's going on in Mexico? I mean, why on earth would an Austrian end up in Mexico, Ed? Uh, that's an excellent question. So um, to take us to Mexico, it becomes independent, unlike most other Latin American nations, as a monarchy. A Spanish royalist changes sides, joins the independence movement, fights against the Spaniards and manages to unite the disparate forces fighting against Spain. Now, he does that with this plan, which is that Mexico should become a monarchy ruled by a member of the Spanish royal family. The Spanish king, Ferdinand VII, who I think has got to be one of the most incompetent monarchs of the 19th century, and that's a highly competitive field, yeah. <laughs> refuses point blank to accept um, and this plan whatsoever. So you're presented with a problem. You've, you have a monarchy, but you don't have a monarch. Itabide, the, the, the Spanish um, royalist officer who's changed sides, his solution is he crowns himself emperor. So Mexico does become uh, an empire. There's a first Mexican empire, but it's disastrous. His reign is short, nine months. Uh, he's very quickly deposed, goes off into exile. It actually comes back in 1824, expecting to be welcomed as a hero. He's not. Uh, he's arrested and then executed for treason. So that's the first uh, emperor of independent Mexico. Now, after that, Mexico is plagued by instability. It does become a republic, but violence much more important than the ballot box in determining who holds power. And if you want a Sisyphean task, try and memorise every single Mexican president from 1824 Mm -hmm. to 1861. If you include the interim presidents and the presidents who are not recognised by other presidents, um, it's near impossible. So you have what we might call uh, anachronistically a failed state in Latin America. But so far, apart from that beginning with monarchy, not that different to the fate of many other Latin American republics. What also sets Mexico apart is its proximity to the United States of America. And as a later president of Mexico famously says, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. And nowhere would that have been more apparent than in 1846. The United States of America declares war on Mexico. It's a, it's a nakedly expansionist drive to, to dominate the North American con- um, continent. In just over a year, U.S. troops march up uh, from Veracruz, the main Atlantic port of Mexico, and occupy the magnificent city um, the capital, Mexico City, unfurling the stars and stripes across the, this, this glorious main square with the Catholic cathedral looming over them. Now, they only leave at an extraordinary high price. The Mexican government gets $15 million, which was nothing then, bearing in mind that, the, that, that, that what the United States of America is going to get. They're going to get half of Mexico's national territory. So this is places today like California, for example. Um, and in return, U.S. troops will end the occupation uh, and a peace treaty is signed. So you not only do you have political instability, you have national humiliation and trauma. And in the 1850s, things don't improve. There's a civil war between two rival factions, very loose political parties, liberals and conservatives. The liberals are led by Benito Juarez. And their argument as to why Mexico is in the situation it is, is that it's not liberal enough. It's not secular enough. They need to... And Ed, Juarez is, is actually, he's indigenous, isn't he? So he's he is not indeed. of Spanish descent. Yes, he, he's, he's from indigenous peoples of Mexico, Zapotec, just outside of, um, of Oaxaca 
which is southeast Mexico. So he comes from an incredibly humble background. Oh, absolutely! He's an extraordinary figure, uh, and and as we'll see throughout this this story, he's he's someone who you know he's, he stays with it for the whole duration, and of course stays with it for longer than Maximilian in the end. He's he's an extraordinary figure, um, determined on self improvement. So if you read um, his sort of own notes, his own kind of autobiographical notes, he talks about how he wanted to learn Spanish because Spanish wasn't his first language in this indigenous community that he grew up in in the foothills and the mountains, very desolate. Um, so he wanted to learn Spanish to better himself. And his uncle was one of the few people who spoke Spanish. So sort of after toiling all day in the field, he would go to his uncle's house uh, and he wasn't making sufficient progress in his studies. So he used to take um, a whip and he would ask his, his, his uncle to beat him to improve his Spanish. So oh that's word. what the story that Benito Juarez tells Tougher you. Tougher than Duolingo, isn't that's it? Very, uh, <laughs> that's very Gladstonian <laughs> behaviour. So you've got this extraordinarily determined individual in Benito Juarez and he's, he comes to power, well... It's not him in power in 1855, but it, it's, it's his party and it's a group of much more radical liberals determined to break the power of the Catholic Church, which is not only has an enormous spiritual hold over Mexico, but is the biggest landowner is the principal economic powerhouse. Um, and so the key reform here is they nationalize church property uh, and sell it on the open market as you know, any, any good liberal will, which has, has two, two happy effects of that. One, you break the power of the Catholic Church, and two, you, you enrich the coffers of, of the government treasury. Now, for the other faction, the conservatives, the reason why Mexico has been humiliated and is politically unstable is not because it's not liberal enough, but because it's gone too far in that direction. And the only thing they argue that meaningfully binds Mexico together as a nation state is Catholicism. So you have a bitter divide over to the future of Mexico. Long story short, Benito Juarez's liberals win. They enter the capital in triumph in 1861. Conservatives are defeated and they flee, uh, many of them in exile. Uh, Benito Juarez holds elections and becomes the constitutional president of Mexico. But those exiles never accept, and actually many conservatives still in Mexico, never accept that result. Shock horror. Who, 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 who <laughs> would have thought it? A shock? I know. Disgraceful behaviour in the 19th century. So to put this into context, um, Ed, you just said 1861. So 1861 is the year of the outbreak of the American Civil War. So at this point, the big sort of bullying neighbor to the north is, is absorbed by its own problems. Because of course, actually now to the north of Mexico, it's the Confederate States of America fighting the Civil War against the Union. Now, the other issue, I guess, is am I right in thinking there's a, that the major problem for Mexico is indebtedness. It's a problem of so many um, countries in what we would now call the developing world in the 19th century. They've run up colossal debts to Europe, largely to European sort of um, lenders, haven't they? They have. Uh, and the Mexican government particularly took out a, a series of loans in the 1820s, which they never paid back. And the principal uh, debtor to, um, to, to the nation to whom they owe the debt is actually Britain. But they have also um, money which they owe to France and which they owe to Spain. Now, given the political history of Mexico, given the US-Mexican War and the Civil War that we've just described, the Treasury is, is not overflowing, you won't be surprised to hear. So what Benito Juarez does as an emergency measure is he suspends foreign debt payment. He asks, well, he doesn't ask, he declares it, and Congress declares two years without paying foreign debt. Now, in the mid-19th century, um, that kind of behaviour has a pretty quick response from European powers, which is military intervention. Right. So we have, on the one hand, um, a, a, a man of peasant background, indigenous, didn't even learn to speak Spanish, hauled himself up from his bootstraps, who's become president of a, a liberal but massively indebted Mexican Republic. On the other hand, we've already introduced him, Maximilian the Archduke, um, one of the long line of, of, of Habsburgs, one of the probably the most famous royal dynasty in, in the whole of Europe. Now, the person who brings them together, who joins, who who binds their fates together. I think we can say the villain of this podcast, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Would he be, by any chance, a Frenchman? <laughs> <laughs> he is. He is a Frenchman. Um, in, in some ways a quintessential Frenchman, in other ways not. This is Napoleon III, nephew of the more famous uh, Napoleon. Uh, and a man, similarly, we've got quite a few people in the story convinced of their destiny. Napoleon III is convinced that he is the man who will lead France back to greatness and, and more importantly, lead himself to greatness and restore his uncle's empire in some form, um, which he does manage to do despite several um, failed attempts in the 1830s and 1840s. He's actually the first ever democratically elected president of France, happens to be a Bonaparte, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte. I should say it's universal male suffrage in this case. The problem he has is that the Second Republic, the, re the, the regime that he is now president of, 
has a constitution which prohibits him being re-elected. So he does what any self-respecting Bonapartist would do, launches a coup d'etat against his own government, and a year later, in 1852, declares himself emperor of the French. Yeah, that's so Napoleonic. (laughs) And so presumably he is self-consciously following in the footsteps of his uncle. I think he wakes up every day and asks himself, what what would my uncle have done? Uh, And tries to do some kind of version of it. But what's important as well about that that moment in 1851 where he launches the coup d'etat is that what he has done there is he has destroyed a republic and on the ashes of that republic created an empire, a monarchy. Mm -hmm. This is where the famous Karl Marx quote comes. um, The first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. If people have heard of Napoleon III, it's often through through that Karl Marx quote talking about the coup. But in the 1850s, there's not very much farcical at all about his regime. In fact, the economy booms, the foreign policy is a success. He allies with Britain in fighting the Crimean War. Um, they invade northern Italy in 1859, defeating Franz Joseph. Uh, and it seems as though he's ended France's isolation, restored France to greatness um, to some extent, uh, and has created a, a domestically stable political system. So this is something that monarchists uh, in, and conservatives in Mexico uh, take a look at. And they have the ear of Napoleon III through his wife, the Empress Eugenie. Their pitch to him is to make Mexico great again, to coin a phrase. You need to return to the original idea of independence, which is monarchy. And so they tell Napoleon III it's going to be incredibly easy. All we would need is a few thousand French troops. We'll turn up there. We'll, t- we'll declare the plan, which is to restore Mexico to its original state of monarchy. Um, Mexican conservatives who have been defeated by Juarez will, f- will flock to the banner. And Benito Juarez, who may say he's a liberal, actually he's a despot. It's a radical minority oppressing the silent majority of Mexicans who, who will once uh, Maximilian turns up acclaim him as emperor. Right, Napoleon. Now, what's in it for him? Because obviously France, you know, it hasn't been a great colonial power in Latin, what we now think of as as Latin America and South America, Central America, or the bottom bit of North America. Is he thinking he can... He can carve out a, a new a new French American empire, or is he after the natural resources? Does he just want his debts paid, or is it just about press? What is it? What what's what does he think he's going to get? It's a mixture of all of those things, in fact. Uh, but one, I think, one thing that's interesting to flag here is he does have an incredibly grand vision uh, for Latin America, and that term. Well, he comes up with the term, doesn't he? He doesn't. He doesn't come up with the term, but it, the term is um, is first coined in Paris in the eighteen fifties, right. and there's a bit of dispute there's, there's, uh, about who said what and when. But it's mid eighteen fifties. It's in Paris where this idea of of, pa- of Latin America um, bubbles up and begins to get expressed. One vision of Latin America, um, which is one that Napoleon III is sympathetic to, is this idea of of, of southern countries with the Catholic tradition and culture have an affinity with the southern European Catholic countries, and of course, the most powerful southern European Catholic country is France. So Latin America, and it's, it's, that term Latin is in opposition to Anglo-Saxon, northern United right. States of America, right? Yeah. And it, the reason why it becomes, it becomes coined in the 1850s is because you're demarcating an, an, an area of influence for France uh, that is in opposition to further U.S. aggression, because no one in the 1850s thinks that U.S. expansion is going to stop where it right. stops. But but the U.S. have proclaimed the Monroe Doctrine, though, haven't they? So they basically said, the U.S. have publicly said they don't want European powers, you know, involved in the in the Western Hemisphere anymore. But, but Napoleon still thinks he can get away with it. He thinks kind of sod the U.S. They've got their own troubles about slavery. I can just ignore them. Is that basically, I mean, or, or am I being too simplistic? No, not at all. And it's precisely because of the US Civil War that uh, Napoleon III is able to try and put his vision into practice. Because torn apart with the conflict between Union and Confederacy, the Monroe Doctrine, which is incredibly popular, actually, and that sort of nationalist cornerstone of foreign policy, it's not just in the, in the, in the corridors of power where it's discussed. It, it's, um, it's something that you can get up on and talk about in elections and people cheer. They cannot fear, um, they cannot risk, rather, antagonising the French and getting the French involved into the civil war, potentially recognising the Confederacy, worse still um, offering some kind of mediation or perhaps even getting involved militarily. So the Monroe Doctrine, interesting, Lincoln doesn't use the phrase Monroe Doctrine once from 1861 to 1865. Well, because in your book, you describe this episode as the greatest challenge to the Monroe Doctrine until the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is, you know, I mean, that's quite something it's it gives you a sense of the kind of geopolitical stakes that mm. are involved in in what might seem a you know an almost kind of opera buffet kind of episode but 
I, I completely agree and I stand by that. And it, it, this is this this French intervention, monarchy, Catholicism on the borders of the United States of America. I mean, this is the very nightmare that, uh, that you know, everyone's sort Hapsburgs. of... Habsburgs. Um, Habsburgs <laughs> yeah. turning up on your doorstep. I mean, this, uh, you know, this is yeah, what, what the people... Horror. The horror. So, <laughs> exactly. so you say, Hap, Tom says Habsburgs. Napoleon needs a candidate. He doesn't think of picking... I mean, I tell you what his uncle would have done, Ed. His uncle would have picked one of his family. Why doesn't Napoleon do that? Of course. Of course. And he's got plenty, you know, there are loads of Bonaparte's lying around. That's part of the reason why they, you know, they keep coming back. So um, I think even for a, a man as self-obsessed with the Bonapartist myth as Napoleon III, he feels that that's one uh, sort of area of policy in which he shouldn't emulate his uncle. Uh, and it's also a sense because he is trying to, 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 and, and, and we'll see this when we, when we get into, into what he creates. The, independence of Mexico is, is central to the idea. Now, now, whether there is any independence or not, something we can discuss later, but having a, you know, his, a half-brother or, or a cousin or whatever on the throne of Mexico is not a strong look. So that's not an option for him. Um, Bonaparte's relations with the French um, royal houses is, of course, not brilliant. So you can't have a French monarch. And the um, some in some of the sort of ultra-conservative um, Mexicans wouldn't mind a Spanish monarch, but even with their limited horizons, they're aware that the, the sort of toxic legacy of Spanish colonialism is that's a hard sell. But also, if you're you know if you're looking for a monarch in the 19th century, the name Habsburg um, is is the illustrious one that sort of uh, stands out of, above all others. And so, if you could get a Habsburg on board. Um, that would be a fantastic for the for, for the project, and of course the, the connection as well with the 16th century. It's under Emperor Charles V, also King of Spain, that Mexico is first subjugated and brought under the Spanish Empire. So you have that legacy as well. And they're not to be reductive, but also Maximilian looks like an emperor, right? I mean, he's, he's a tall, <laughs> impressive-looking guy Sorry, with a great big forked beard. Um, I mean, but 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 obviously the, the the look of the whole business is going to be very important. I mean, it's you know, there's a slight element of smoke and mirrors about the whole concept, which is and which of course is a huge part of monarchy and indeed a huge part of Maximilian's life. I mean, he's obsessed with the minute chai. Of, of, of detail and etiquette, uh, but also the outward appearance of monarchy. Uh, and so, how, yeah, absolutely, he does, he, fit, he fits the role. Um, and the other reason is that he's available, um, because as we said earlier, he's been sidelined by his brother, Franz Joseph. Uh, and if we are going to make the, um, the, the Harry connection, then... Uh, Who is ha- Meghan? <laughs> every Harry needs their Meghan. Uh, and so, 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 so enter Maximilian's Meghan. Uh, she's, she's Princess Charlotte. Now, she's better known to Mexican history as Carlotta. Uh, but she's the daughter of the Belgian king, Leopold I, uh, and her mother's side related to the kings and queens of France. So she has, she has a, a, and to push the Meghan analogy further, she, um, by, by virtue of being a Belgian princess, she's not someone who is on an equal footing with the Habsburgs. Now, Maximilian's been sent on one of these sort of various pointless diplomatic missions that his brother likes to get him on because it gets him out of, out of, out of Austria and, and away from the centre of power. Uh, and he's very dismissive of going to the Belgian court. He thinks it's, you know, it's disgusting that someone like him should have to go to a monarchy, which was only created in 1831. Yeah. Um, you know, a year before he was born. So it's hard for him to take, the Belgians. Yeah. <laughs> hard for to take it seriously. Um, and when he's, 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 he's there, he goes to one of these balls and he says it's, it's awful because, you know, the, the, the elite of the country um, are sort of uh, mixing and talking with their tailors and their cobblers. And it's the kind of thing that sh- shouldn't be allowed to happen. One thing he does like, though, is Princess Charlotte Carlotta. Well, do you know, I'm not surprised because, uh, Dominic, did, did you pick up on this, that her favourite subjects when she was age 12? Oh, remind me, Tom. Religion. And Plutarch. Oh my God! It's like <laughs> what a girl! Tom, what a girl! Tom what, a, what a nightmarish image! I'd marry her like a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly what Maximilian thinks, and indeed then does. Within months, they're married, and um, she's she's fiercely ambitious herself. But obviously, as, a, as an aristocratic woman in nineteenth century, she needs a husband for a meaningful political role. And she has a sense of destiny, doesn't she? Like everybody on this story, she everyone has a sense of destiny. In this, God yes. has God has picked her for some mm. unspecified purpose. Is that right? Mm. She's incredibly pious and incredibly Catholic, um, and uh, yes, and very much buys into that vision of providence. Is the word that she always uses. Um, and part of the of the of the condition that Leopold the um, first agrees to it on the proviso that Franz Joseph gives Maximilian a position of power, a meaningful position of power, and that is governor of Lombardy, Venetia, which is one of the richest uh, parts of the Austrian Empire at this time in northern Italy. But it's a poison chalice because the the forces of Italian nationalism make this an incredibly difficult job for anyone to do well uh, and succeed in. 
So it's very much, you, oh, you wanted a position of power. Well, here you go, try this. Um, even then, Franz Josef is quite careful to keep real power in Vienna uh, and away from Maximilian. Uh, and within two years, Napoleon III, um, who had a sort of youthful romantic love of Italian nationalism, backs Piedmont, invades northern Italy with 200,000 troops and defeats Franz Josef um, in, the, in, 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 in northern Italy. Franz Josef has, sort of weeks before, sacked Maximilian as well, very humiliatingly. So what you have um, by the end of the 1850s and certainly beginning of the 1860s is you have Maximilian and Carlotta who are underemployed, underappreciated, but both convinced that they have a, a much greater destiny. And so right. to just, to, just to put this into, just to absolutely nail this down, they have never been to Mexico. Never. They, they don't speak Spanish. Well... Not um, at this point, sure. No, not fluently, not fluently. So they're not fluent Spanish speakers. They've never crossed the Atlantic? Maximilian has, actually. He's been to Brazil. Yeah, after he gets sacked as, as governor of Lombardy, Venetia, Maximilian loves to travel, that sort of uh, wanderlust, travelling travelling the globe to the exotic. and very sort of Alexander von Humboldt-esque is his, uh, yes. would be one of his, his great heroes. But he's not been to North America. Right? No, he's not. No, Brazil is a very long way away <laughs> yeah, from Mexico. I mean, yeah, yeah. I I've guess. been to a Brazilian restaurant, yes, but I wouldn't try to, to become yeah, a job well, Brazil. Brazil. Go on. Have you been to Mexico? Well, no, I have been to Brazil, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's his pitch. So, so, so obviously it's a brilliant idea. To them, it does seem like a brilliant idea. It, it does. And so basically he signs up to it. Carlotta signs up to it. Um, and, and they decide that they, they will go. They accept this. Um, I think we should take a break at this point. Uh, and when we come back, we should um, look at the story of, of what actually happens when Maximilian and Carlotta set sail for their kingdom. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Tom, excellent news. Uh, sponsors Unheard, that's U-N-H-E-R-D, the online magazine that pushes back against herd mentality and encourages independent thinking. They are back. Hooray. It's great news, isn't it? That's fantastic news. And um, <laughs> what are they publishing um, imminently, Dominic? Well, Tom, I hate to blow my own trumpet. Um, I Go don't, on. actually. I don't, I don't hate it at all. I love it. Um, so I have just written a piece for them about – it was their idea, actually. It was Jacob Faraday's idea, the, one of the editors at Unheard. And he said this was the it was the seventy fifth anniversary, uh, on I think March the twelfth, of tr the promulgation of the Truman Doctrine. Do you know what that is? The Truman Doctrine? No. Okay. Well, I'll tell you. And this is why you have to read unheard, Tom. Yes. Um, so Harry Truman, little man, former haberdasher from Kansas City, whose shop went bust after two years, uh, is catapulted into the U.S. presidency in nineteen forty five. 
So that's when Roosevelt dies. When Roosevelt dies. And then he's, he's, there's that sort of muddy period at the end of the Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War. And then in 1947, he gets up in front of a joint session of Congress and he basically says, we're in a, we're in a you know, global conflict with the Soviet Union. We're going to give loads of money to Greece and Turkey to stave off communism. We can't allow them to fall to communism. And they're basically, we've got a new policy, which is containing communism wherever it is. We're not, not fighting it militarily, but using economic, political and cultural pressure to draw a line between the free world and the totalitarian world, and it'll be a long struggle, and one day we'll win. And so, Dominic, w- when you wrote this, were you aware of any contemporary potential? I was, of course, and this was very much in because, Tom, we were in the not dissimilar position to the one Truman was in in '47. So Stalin didn't have nuclear weapons at that point. They were two years away. But, you know, the Red Army was massive, and fighting Stalin would have meant millions of casualties. So the Americans and the British didn't want to do it. But they actually had a contingency plan but they knew it would be incredibly costly. So the same sort of deterrent was still there. Um, and I think um, you could argue that Truman's genius and Clement Attlee in Britain and Ernest Bevan, the founders of NATO, was that they said basically it'll be a long campaign, very grueling, and it means, in a way, uh, condemning a lot of people to live under communism in regimes they don't want and a world of lies and all that sort of stuff. But in the long run, we can do it and it will be worth it. So I, I think there to... is a there is a good lesson there actually. Okay, I don't. I mean, uh, people should obviously read your article. Go to unheard dot com. U N H E R D. Yeah, um, very good. But do, do you have any? Do you draw any optimistic conclusions? Yes, I do. Or, I do. do. Okay, I'll well, say no more. Dominic. I say at the end no, of the essay, no, I'll, Dominic, tell you, no. I'll tell you what I'd say, Tom. I will tell you what I'd say. Okay, I will have my say. Uh, I say Harry Truman has already seen off Lenin and Stalin, even in death, he can see off Vladimir Putin as well. Well. There is a thought. Uh, and if you would um, like to read articles of a similar quality to Dominic's <laughs> in what I'm Tom, sure is the ongoing that. campaign that all of us are engaged in to uh, stave off herd mentality, you go to unheard.com, U-N-H-E-R-D. And if you are a Rest is History listener, slash rest, you type in slash rest and you get three months for free. Yeah. And normally, Tom, it is a a one pound, pound a week, isn't a week. it? I mean, that's good value in itself. But to have it for free is I mean, extraordinary. That's just, yeah. 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 And often absolutely not to be missed. So many thanks to Unheard. And now let's get back to whatever it is, whatever it is we're talking about. <laughs> They're going to Mexico, which I cannot understand. Uh, that was Queen Victoria commenting on um, Maximilian and Carlotta. That was very Liam Neeson, straight creepy <laughs> boy, I thought, actually, Tom, but there you go. Uh, it was Queen Victoria. Everyone would know that was Queen Victoria. I mean, obviously, you're Queen Victoria. Now going to Mexico, which I cannot <laughs> understand. Um, but enough of that. Um, Ed, we have Maximilian and, and Carlotta are heading off to Mexico. Uh, and this is a Mexico that has basically been, it's under French occupation. Is that right? Or most of it is, the central yeah. part of it is. That's that's a good way of describing it, Tom. So the the reason why Napoleon III had accepted it and, and Maximilian Carlotta too is because it it thought that it would be fairly easy to put into practice. In fact, it's a massive undertaking that requires regime change. So Napoleon III, in, eight, in 1862, he only sends 6,000 troops. And that's how easy he thinks it's going to be to work his way up from Veracruz to Mexico City and the overland route, same route that the conquistadors And is that because did. he's kind of influenced by uh, the, you know, the story of Cortez? conquering the Aztecs. I mean, does he, is this, is this kind of idea that it's yeah. really easy to conquer yeah, yeah. Mexico City? That looms so large in the minds of the soldiers and in the mind of Napoleon III. All I would say as a caveat to that is that the, the US expeditionary force that fights its way uh, along exactly the same route, there's only one route to Mexico City from Veracruz, uh, right, that you're going to take, is only about 12,000 men. So Napoleon III sent half that, but what he thinks will happen is that Mexican monarchists, Mexican conservatives will rally to the French flag and um, therefore, he's got much more support than the United States of America had. So it's it's part delusion, but 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 partially based on what he thinks happened, um, you know, a few decades ago or a couple of decades ago. Of that, these six thousand troops, uh, they they're on their way to Mexico City, and to get there, you have to go past the Mexico's great second second city, Puebla. And the French commander is incredibly confident because remember, this is the French army that defeated the Russians in Crimea, defeated the Austrians in eighteen fifty nine. And so he deploys before this city, magnificent, with churches and convents. You'd, you'd love it, Tom. And uh, 
gives the order for wave after wave of French troops just to attack frontal assault onto the city. But they are cut down by the heroic resistance of Benito Juarez's army, which, of course, has remained loyal to the constitutional president rather than rallying to the, the flag of a French invader. So that's just to give, and that's, sorry, by the way, I should say that goes down in history as Cinco de Mayo, because that's on the 5th of May. It's a Mexican national holiday, isn't it? I mean, it is, I well, still it's, remember it. It's often, it's often, it is, it's a, it's a big deal, but it's often mistaken for Mexican independence. Um, it's not, it's actually celebrating this, this victory at the Battle of Pueblo. So that gives you an indication of how diff- difficult the situation is. Um, and so difficult is it that that pacification, which is the euphemism the French use for their brutal uh, counterinsurgency tactics, it takes another year for them to get to Mexico City. And it takes yet another year for Maximilian and Carlotta to make the voyage across to Mexico. So they don't get there until May 1864. And Ed, I mean, it, there are some hilariously badly behaved Frenchmen in this story. So there's there's um, this, this uh, diplomat, Dubois de Saligny, who's, I, I mean, he's, he seems the worst diplomat in in <laughs> diplomatic history. I mean, his, his chief talent seems to be for offending people. There's a, a general, uh, General Foire, who is so fat that a chair collapses under him. <laughs> And then there's this terrifying colonel who who's um whose kind of counterinsurgency record is is reminiscent of of the Battle of Algiers. I mean, this is um it, it's not a kind of dream team, is it? For a, a French dream team in terms of nation building. It's not a great. It's not a dream team for nation building at all. No, and the, the counterinsurgency colonel uh, Charles Dupin is an extraordinary figure, sort of the reverse of General Gordon. Although actually, perhaps not in one way, but one of his fellow French officers said of Dupin, he had. All the vices known to man, except for drink. But actually, I think that makes him slightly more terrifying because he's put in charge of uh, counterinsurgency. He, he was actually thrown out of the French army, um, not for looting the Summer Palace in Beijing. So he was in the Opium Wars. Of course he was. Mexico is a conflict that drags in the sort of the dregs and soldiers of fortunes or, uh, and various imperialist um, ventures. Now, he was, he was he, unlike General Gordon, he was, he was, he was you know, leading the charge. He's literally one of the first in and first out with as much um, loot as he could. He then went back to Paris and just openly sold it, which even for um, you know, the Second Empire and Napoleon III was considered corruption too much. So <laughs> he was kicked out of the French army. But when he heard they were going to Mexico, um, Napoleon, he wrote to Napoleon III and said, well, this is, this is, you, you know this is the kind of place I excel in. Um, and Napoleon III essentially backs him and, and gets him off to Mexico, where he sets up this counter-guerrilla unit. To, to defeat the, the, the forces of Benito Juarez, who've never surrendered, by the way. Benito Juarez is just retreating northwards um, from Mexico City after the French take the capital. And he, this is an extraordinary letter that he writes to his niece, where he says, I have waged an atrocious war. If I were Mexican, what hatred I would have for the French and how I would make them suffer. I think, well, you don't, why would you write that <laughs> to your niece? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'd like to see what she wrote back. It's a nice, it be nice <laughs> Thanks for the necklace. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed your thoughts about the war. But the serious point is, that, as Tom says, if you're trying, if you're trying to win over hearts and minds, to use the, the phrase that would probably be used today in this kind of foreign intervention, having someone who is burning down villages, summarily executing people suspected of, of aiding Benito Juarez, uh, and and generally causing all kinds of, of trouble, is is not necessarily the person that you want. And so Maximilian has that problem. How do you win over? a population that is that is potentially hostile anyway and even more so when they've borne the brunt of the french army but ed the amazing thing is that maximilian is kind of oblivious to this isn't he because napoleon has said to him if i'm if i remember this right from the book napoleon has said um everybody in in mexico is absolutely on board with you arriving and it's only a tiny minority who are making a fuss and also napoleon has said crucially the British are completely on board with this and they'll support you as well, which is an outright lie. The British have already said, haven't they? We're not going yeah. to intervene. We're not going to bail you out if mm-hmm. it goes wrong. But Maximilian, is it self-delusion or does or is he genuinely deluded by the French? I think it's a bit of both. I think that he wants to be misled. So Napoleon III does spin an incredibly elaborate diplomatic game. Uh, and he's, Napoleon III is a man who loves conspiracies and, and, and back channels and smoke-filled rooms. And so this is this is a fantastic opportunity for him to really put that into practice. He absolutely misleads Maximilian about the popularity of monarchy in Mexico, and he completely deceives him about um, the British view. Uh, and the British, the British, the British is interesting, but slightly ambivalent, because although so Palmerston is prime minister at this time, and although no lover of the French, he's he's absolutely no lover of the United States of America. And so when this plan's put to him, he says, "Well, it will cost tens of millions of pounds, and we'd have to send twenty thousand troops." No way, Britain would do that. But if France wants to 
push back the power of the United States of America for us. We shouldn't, <laughs> you know, that would be fantastic. So actually, Russell, his foreign secretary, wants to write a letter to Maximilian because Maximilian's condition of accepting the crown is British support. And Palmerston says, no, 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 don't write the letter. Keep it ambiguous. Keep it ambiguous. Um, so Maximilian, he is misled, but there's, you know, there's sort of a lot of intrigue going on, um, which is probably, you know, it's slightly above anything that he would be able to comprehend. But Ed, you have so you have a brilliant passage in your book where you describe how um, Maximilian, Carlotta, and and all their gang um, come from from uh, Veracruz to to Mexico City, and <laughs> they they all have to kind of get off a train and get picked up by by mules. And you describe it, this caravan presented an extraordinary sight, the elite of Habsburg society dressed in the finest European fashions, driven towards the capital by local muleteers, clothed in leather jackets, goatskin trousers and wide gold trimmed sombreros. And that's what I mean about the kind of magical realist quality, because it's the conjunction of these two fabulously remote and different worlds coming together that just kind of seems to generate... I mean, it's a kind of tragic comedy, isn't it? Don't they have, like, they have hundreds of base pieces of luggage? I mean, they basically brought everything with them. And they've also brought... Am I right to think they brought their own personal orchestra conductor? Who's well, you can't conduct- go to... You, of course. I mean, you can't go to... <laughs> you can't be an emperor without that. I mean, they just have clearly no clue are we or ed are we being too harsh are they and billiards they, billiards tables because billiards the, the, tables exactly the, the brilliant thing that um that, that that if a guest loses the, um maximilian forces him to crawl under the table as a forfeit but if maximilian loses then a servant does it for him yeah. i mean this is this is quality emperorship it is isn't it so there are there are many reasons that um maximilian is not necessarily the man for the job because he's faced with an ex- extraordinary situation uh, and difficult problems and to overcome them would require a man of equally extraordinary ability and there are elements to him which, as you say, lend themselves to, to farce. And one of them is his obsession with etiquette and court ceremony. Uh, uh, hence why you need to have your orchestra with you, because you, you need to have the right music playing at the right time. So on the long sea voyage over to Mexico, where you think that he might, in fact, be you know, reading up on, on the history and politics of the country he's about to rule, he actually spends most of his time writing a 600-page guide to the etiquette that will be followed at his court. It's so uh, important. It's well, that's the thing. But so you can't. Um, you know, his enemies, of course, they wouldn't. It's absurd that he's 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 worried about you know what shoes um, to wear. But um, what you the other thing, this course, is that etiquette is incredibly important to monarchy. And as Tom was saying earlier, partially it is the the image, it's the pomp and the ceremony. And there is no court in Mexico because it's a republic. So in order for that to be established, it has to be created. Uh, and monarchy it, it so much depends, doesn't it, on that outward appearance of, of sort of grandeur and majesty. But, but, Ed, there's a paradox, isn't there, about Maximilian, which is that although we're making him sound a kind of very stiff, pompous, faintly foolish figure, mm. and although he's been sponsored by uh, Napoleon III, and although um, uh, he, he's been backed by the monarchists, in fact, he's a very, very liberal figure. I mean, and not just by the standards of the Habsburgs. I mean, you know, by anybody's standards and he brings in a whole range of remarkably progressive laws among which am i right he's the first person to introduce a legally guaranteed lunch break <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure whether he's the first person but this i mean is that is a corbynite measure isn't it <laughs> he does he ta- he takes incredible um so this is but again it sort of backfires to him so you're absolutely right he is liberal uh, and very progressive by the standards of the day but of course the people who have called him to rule over him are these Mexican Catholic conservatives who want to restore the power of the church. Now, that's anathema to Maximilian's way of thinking. And part of the reason why he became so distant to Franz Joseph was exactly because he disagreed over these kind of these kind of policies. So when he comes to Mexico, conservatives are expecting, you know, the sort of ultramontane Catholic um, monarch uh, and, and autocracy. And what they get is a, is a slightly watered down version of Benito Juarez's liberalism. He confirms that key policy that Benito Juarez had been fighting for, the nationalisation of church property, to the horror of his own allies. So what he and does... Is, is that because he genuinely believes that's the right thing to do? Or is it because actually he's politically astute enough to recognise that he has to do that if he wants yeah, but to it's not, the foundations but, for his regime? But Tom, I don't think it is astute. You see, now regular listeners will expect this from me. I, is there not an argument, Ed, that yeah, well, Maximilian yes. could have prevailed if he'd just been, if he if he'd really gone all out with okay. all in with the conservatives, if so he'd basically been more partisan and less liberal? So, a question from from Peter Edmund: Would the Emperor Maximilian have been more successful had he been less liberal? Would a fully reactionary monarch, Sandbrook style, have had a better chance? <laughs> um. Yeah, the, the the dream of authoritarians everywhere. It's a really interesting question. I think in terms of counterfactuals, um, 
Yes. Yeah, so we'll deal, dealing with that point first. The thing about I think actually he he is a genuine liberal, but he's also um, we paint him as slightly a buffoonish figure. But he's also doing something pragmatic here. If the Mexican conservatives had been powerful enough to achieve what they wanted to achieve, they would have done it. They lost the civil war and they need the help of France in order to create this monarchical regime. That conservative project has failed. Now, he does alienate his conservative allies. But when push comes to shove, they're going, they are going to back him, right, if necessary. And, they, and we'll see what yeah. they do. What, who, the people who will not back him, even moderate liberals, will not back a reactionary uh, government in Mexico. And therefore, winning over the Juaristas is, a, is something that he genuinely believes is the right thing. He is a moderate liberal, but also is something that might give his empire a much firmer base um, for, for the long term. There's another constraint, though, which is, in fact, Napoleon III, because Napoleon III is very keen not to be seen as reactionary himself. And he, he, re- he refuses to allow, um, he wouldn't have allowed the Conservatives to overturn the nationalisation of church property, because that was actually one of the foundational um, resolutions of the 1789 resolution in France. And Napoleon III, although we think of him as autocratic and dictatorial, he himself saw himself as, as ploughing a sort of middle road between liberalism and conservatism. So there are also constraints on Maximilian. The so real counterfactual, oh, sorry, I say real, I mean, that's, I think that's a good one. I think it would have to be combined with something else. And it's that this has to work and happen in 1862. By 1864, you've only got one year until the end of the American Civil War. And so that geopolitical space to carve out a monarchy on the borders of the United States of America is, is quickly vanishing. So what Maximilian has got into, basically, is a situation of a, an incredibly narrow time window, colossal constraints, his foreign patron, the 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 issues on the ground, all this stuff. And and also the fact, I mean, do you not think though, Ed, he's a, I mean, he is out, totally out of his depth, isn't he? I mean, this is this kind of situation that he's never, ever had to deal with as Franz Josef's younger brother when he was running the Austrian Navy or whatever. I mean, all this stuff about sort of rebranding himself as the champion of the indigenous people and dressing as a cowboy and whatnot. I mean, these are all, they're bound to fail, aren't they? Or am I being too harsh? Well, but but isn't also? I mean, he's he's gone in there to he's under an obligation to Napoleon the Third to pay back this debt yeah. that has, has been kind of ticking away. I mean, that's, so that's never going to further... be popular, is it? No, well, of course, of course. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is his opponent, that man we talked about um, earlier, Benito Juarez, who is absolutely determined that he will never give in to the forces of European imperialism, monarchy, um, and ultimately Maximilian's back as conservatism. In fact, um, Benito Juarez is his former foreign minister urges Benito Juarez to resign. He says, there's no way you will be able to defeat Maximilian backed by the French. We have to come to an accommodation. And look, Maximilian's liberal anyway. And Benito Juarez completely rejects it. So I think had he, it's, it's also what he, the opponent that he's dealing with that makes this difficult. The resistance is, is determined and heroic. But, but for a brief while, I mean, what, a year, a couple of years, things kind of go okay. You know, he brings in measures, he has them translated into Nahuatl. The he does. language of the Aztecs and, and all this kind of stuff, and it's all ticking along, and then and then it all starts to crumble. And is that um, is that due to circumstances within Mexico, or is it the is is it the effect of the ending of the American Civil War, or uh, it's both French so, politics, or in fact all, all three? So the fact that Benito Juarez has been able to hold out for as long as he has and is undefeated is is crucial. It buys him and the Republican forces in, in Mexico time that that they need. And what they need desperately is more money and they need um, resupply as well in terms of munitions. And they get that with the end of the American Civil War. During the American Civil War, there's an arms embargo. And as we said, um, Lincoln is desperate not to do anything to offend France, lest he, he might tip the balance in his own internal conflict. Once that's over, the arms embargo is lifted. Juaristas have access to guns, they have access to money, and they can begin to resupply. Also, crucially, what Washington can now do is pressure Napoleon III. And we can now start talking about the Monroe Doctrine uh, without fear of, of, of any meaningful French reprisal, which is exactly what happens. Uh, it's Sirwood, William Sirwood, who is the Secretary of State, uh, essentially, by the end of 1865, gives Napoleon III an ultimatum, get your troops out of Mexico or it's war. At the same time, Maximilian, not least because of his penchant for orchestras and champagne and interior design and decoration and making all these wonderful residences, his government is bankrupt. So he writes to Napoleon III at the end of the 1865 as well and says, oh, by the way, the, the payments that, that, that we agreed to keep the French army in Mexico, I can't make them anymore. Obviously, we're friends, so it doesn't matter. Can you just cover it for a <laughs> minute? <laughs> 
So that's looking bad. That's looking bad. And then um, Carlotta goes to Europe, right? Right. So she's 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 been uh, she she she's really loved being an empress. I mean, she's oh, a great, she has. great host there. She's had an absolute ball. I mean, often literally, yeah. often um, literally. But she she so she now goes back to. Um, to Europe, and that's partly to kind of finesse things with Napoleon III. But that's also right? she's already and, and said also to, with the papacy. She's already said to Maximilian, hasn't she, Tom? That um, you can't abdicate. You know, basically yeah. like Theodora with yeah. Justinian in the yes, Byzantine yes. Empire. You know, the, the purple is a great winding sheet, or whatever. Yeah. I'd rather die an emperor than than live as a slave. I can. But he agree, he agrees. A true Habsburg never leaves his post in the moment of danger. So it's. But anyway, so she so she so she heads off to Europe, and 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 it goes badly wrong. It does. So she. So when Maximilian finds out that Napoleon um, the Third is going to abandon him, he does rather petulantly say, "Well, no, no, I'll fine. I'll abdicate if you don't want me here." And Carlotta's furious, and she says, "No, absolutely, you, you, you must stay there." And convinces him exactly of what you say, Tom, that a Habsburg never leaves his post. So resolved to stay, she'll go to Paris and she'll persuade Napoleon the uh, Third that to change his mind. So she she voyages over in the summer of eighteen sixty six and arrives in France. Now, I have a lot of sympathy. Uh, we've all been in this situation, haven't we, with, um, with Napoleon III. He does everything he can to avoid this meeting. No one <laughs> likes to be reminded of their foreign policy mistakes. Uh, and, and so he says, well, I'm not feeling very well. And well, wouldn't you rather speak to this person? And perhaps we can Ooh, do it I've got time. COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I'm isolating. Um, eventually, he's shamed into it. And Carlotta, as, as we said, you know, her, her favourite subjects, uh, religion and, and classics. So she's done her homework. She's brought letters that Napoleon III had written to Maximilian saying, you know, my support will never fail you. Now, of course, he earlier in the year, Napoleon III has announced publicly that his support has massively failed and that French troops are coming home. So Carlotta brings these letters out and puts them in front of Napoleon III, an incredibly dramatic meeting. Um, and Napoleon III starts crying, but he doesn't change his mind. <laughs> Oh, Don't doesn't shaking change. his head. It's it's such Gallic conduct. Yeah. I mean, it's like this, this podcast, the story of this podcast could have been written by Dr. Johnson or somebody. And actually, there's a moment where a, a servant comes in and serves refreshments and it slightly, um, it's like, it's slightly sort of um, befuddles Carlotta. And then she's, she, she sort of talks herself out of it. So oh, I see what's happened. Your ministers are forcing you to do this. It's not your decision. Let me speak with them. I'll convince them and they'll convince you. And everybody says, absolutely. I will set up those meetings. You can have, you can have a whole suite of rooms to do them, whatever you want um and of course in, you know foreign policy is to preserve the emperor anyway but his ministers never supported it in the first place it's hugely unpopular in france the decision stands but carlotta's got one trick left up her sleeve which is to go to the vatican and have a meeting with the pope because as we said maximilian's liberal policies have alienated his core catholic conservative constituency but if they are backed by the pope then of course that brings the the, the, the catholics in mexico on board so there's still hope she travels um overland to rome um, arrives there, I think it's in September of 1866. Now, the first meeting um, goes, goes relatively uh, relatively unproblematically. It's the second meeting uh, where things begin to unravel uh, because she's the, the pressure is enormous. She's convinced her husband to stay in Mexico. The empire looks like it's falling apart, and this mission with the Pope is crucial. So she can't wait for it, and her health is beginning to suffer, and she demands to be driven to the Vatican unannounced she breaks into the vatican i mean how do you stop the empress of mexico if you're just on the door to let them through demands to see the pope eventually the pope is sort of roused presumably in his papal pajamas uh, and sort of you know what's what's going on uh, in the corridors of the vatican confronted with the empress of mexico and she breaks down uncontrollable sobs and screaming and what she's screaming is that napoleon the third is trying to murder her with poison that her entire entourage that has come with her from Mexico, her servants, Mexican politicians, whoever they be, are in the pay of the French emperor uh, and they're trying to have her killed. Now, of course, Napoleon III, I mean, you know, devious though he may be, has no interest in poisoning Carlotta and she's lost her mind. He's completely um, gone into a world of delusion and paranoia and she sees Napoleon III as, as literally the devil incarnate, the principle of evil upon earth, uh, she calls him. Now, this, of course, um, doesn't result in a concord up with the Pope, <laughs> which will rally <laughs> no, Catholic Mexico no. behind. So her mission so, is so, so actually, we meant, I said Dubois de Saligny was the worst diplomat of all time, but perhaps Carlotta has actually <laughs> pipped him. She's not, she's not, she's not, she's, yeah, she's not achieved her mission. But I like the way that you were focused on that, Tom. I've been an excellent <laughs> boss, sir. But did you, <laughs> and, and the deal? 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Did it come off? <laughs> it doesn't. She's actually taken into um, taken into care by her Belgian family and put in, into into you know, well, like the equivalent of, of isolation, which is the way that people thought the best to deal with these these mental problems in those days. And of course, it was the very opposite. She never recovers, and in fact, she never goes back to Mexico. But meanwhile, Maximilian is is stuck in Mexico, and 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 the sphere of his control is starting to shrink and collapse, and so he gets advised, doesn't he, to um, go to a place called Queretaro, is that right? Uh, Queretaro, yes. He's already had one, another flirtation with abdication, hasn't he, when he hears about Carlotta? And again, people say to him, other people say, oh, don't don't abdicate, you know, better to, you're a Habsburg, all this sort of stuff. And I I think he packed his, am I right thinking he packed his bags on that occasion? This time, so again, once he hears the news that Carlotta has had suffered this terrible incident um, and his wife is sick, he resolves to abdicate again, so second time. Um, but we, I mean, we should have really emphasised about Maximilian. He's indecisive. He procrastinates. He doesn't like. Well, if you don't have to make a decision, don't make it. Always push it. But he is brave, right? I mean, he's he he is very brave. That comes across absolutely. So he's talked out of it, as Dominic says. Um, the Conservative allies promise him everything: tens of thousands of men, tens of millions of dollars. Once the French have gone, we won't have the stigma of foreign intervention. Just think how we'll be able to defeat the Paristas. <laughs> yeah, without any soldiers, we'll be so. Popular. <laughs> exactly. But he does have some, doesn't he? I mean, he, he does, and that's why, and that's why the, the, he ends up going to this place Quarotero because there are you know this is a stronghold of of, of conservatism yeah. and so the once the French have left and you know the, the, there's just all kinds of scenes reminiscent of, of more recent events where refugees following in the wake of the French army and um, sort of chaos and so on and so forth and they desperately want Maximilian to come with them he refuses to say I'm going to stay and fight uh, and that's it so the plan is to go to a town about 130 miles northwest of Mexico City Quarotero now, this is an imperial stronghold. There are imperial Easter soldiers, the supporters of Maximilian imperial Easters already uh, there. And what's going to happen is this is the plan as it stands. Maximilian will become commander in chief of the army. He will lead a small force out from Mexico City. They will march to the relief of these imperial Easters. Three Horista armies are converging on the city, but you defeat them one by one. And then the empire will be gloriously restored after this dramatic victory over the forces of the you know, empire's atheistic liberals. It sounds like a desperate plan, and it is one. Um, instead of the tens of thousands of men, the Conservatives managed to scrape together 1,500 for Maximilian uh, to lead northwards, and only $50,000, uh, which is barely enough to pay the, the wages of the troops that he's marching to um, Carretero with, rather than um, even you know to relieve that force. And then, he, and then he goes butterfly hunting. Well, this is it. So, <laughs> my, <laughs> so Maximilian has never served in an army, let alone commanded one. He's appointed commander in chief uh, with the idea that, you know, this victory will be his responsibility and therefore will demonstrate what a wonderful leader he is. Maximilian, he's, he's, I guess, what you would have, what one would call a dilettante, although um, he's, you know, he's, he's interested in natural science and botany uh, and especially butterflies. And it's sort of a fantastic moment. So the, the, the territory, his empire has shrunk to the point because while he's prevaricated about whether I should abdicate, the Juaristas are advancing on all sides and they're taking towns and cities uh, and taunting the defenders, saying, well, your emperor's packed up, as Dominic says, your emperor's, you know, he's packed up his furniture. Um, he's off. So what on earth are you fighting for? Plus, they haven't been paid in about a year either. So it's it's there's not really much um, support for him. Uh, it's melting away. And so the, the countryside is held by Khari's degree of forces. And so he's constantly under attack on this march. But he was always he's always stopping off um, for sort of teachable moments about Aztec history that will inspire his troops <laughs> or to look at a, a rare butterfly that he hasn't cut. I mean, this is this is where it's very Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah. I think that's how you would behave, Tom. As yeah, a, it wasn't it? I mean, you would <laughs> yeah, see some sort of interesting fossil, or you know, you go on yeah. one of your walks and yeah, look at yeah. some old churches. Well, well, I can tell you, I can tell you, I would have, I would have scarpered in his situation. <laughs> I would absolutely have abdicated. And there's a wonderful, wonderful moment as he's he's writing letters to his um, the, the the director of a museum of natural science, which he's opened. As he, he's a big fan of museums, so there's a lot to like with Maximilian there. And he's talking about the journey and he really does focus on the butterflies. And he says, well, as the bullets were whistling around me, I noticed the most extraordinary butterfly. <laughs> it's kind of, it's admirable. It's admirable in, it is. in, it is. in a but certain it, way. Well, the, he does show absolute cool, calm and collected courage under fire. And he does show leadership abilities and, 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 and charisma. And he does lead this horse safely um, to Carretero. But, but, but that then turns out to be, I kind of, because as I understand it from your book, it's kind of, it's surrounded by heights and the uh, his enemies are able to occupy the heights, and so basically he's he's stuck there. 
Kaetero is the worst place to have a siege, surrounded by uh, hills on three sides, open plain to the west. There's a beautiful 18th century aqueduct that brings water in. That's very quickly cut. The Juaristas take the high ground. Uh, and, of course, the plan to defeat these armies one by one would require decisive action. And Maximilian which, has which a council of war, prevaricates, and it doesn't happen. But even now, he could still escape, right? Because somebody says to him, don't they, at some point... You know, I've basically got a great plan for you to get away and get out of the town. But Maximilian says, no, 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 I've invited some local officials. What would they say if they arrived and I was gone? It would be very <laughs> disrespectful and discourteous of me to leave. Which, again, I think reflects very well on Yes, him. absolutely. I mean, it's much more, manners are much more important than um, saving one's own, own life. But anyway, so, so he, ends, he ends up, in, again, you have a fabulous sentence. Uh, the Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian, born at the Habsburg Palace of Schönebrunn, offered his sword to Escovedo a former farm labourer from the harsh Sierras of Nuevo León, which again, it's kind of that, it's, it, it, it's that c- conjunction of two totally alien worlds. And he gets, he becomes a prisoner um, and things take a dark turn for him from that point on. <laughs> yes, understand. The, the, the result is not good from his point of view. Yeah, the, the siege, it was a disaster. He's actually betrayed um, after two months by one of his most loyal officers, a, a man that he was godfather to, to children of who goes over into Juarista lines, leads them through, uh, and, and in and sort of morning of May 15th, 1867, the Juaristas have encircled um, the, the town and broken through the Imperialista lines, and he's put in prison, court-martialed, uh, which is very much going to be a show trial. It's actually held in a, a theatre named after the first emperor of Mexico, Itabide, and people who've been paying attention will remember that he was also executed. I love the detail in your book where he says, I don't think, I, I don't really think I want to have a trial. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an emperor. And they say, yeah, but people have been, tri- kings have been tried before. Look at Louis XVI. <laughs> I can't imagine anything less reassuring. I know, and that's from another <laughs> French diplomat. It's a French diplomat. He desperately doesn't want to go. And she says, yes, but what about Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI? I mean, that, that was good for them. Charles I, interestingly, is an inspiration for for him I was about to say well. very much a, well is he a friend of the show Charles the first he has an ambiguous well, relationship he does I think yes, yeah. but, 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 Ed, but Ed here's a question for you why do the Mexicans why are they so set on 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 trying him and executing him why don't they just put him on a boat and say you know bugger off back to Europe it's an excellent question. And Maximilian would have been fairly confident that that's what would have happened. Of course, it's something that he's offered to do. Um, he says, you know, I'll, you know, I'll applicate a go. I promise I won't come back. Um, and if you think about, you know, the, the conflict you have in North America between Union Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, who's committed, you know, the most egregious treason you possibly could uh, against the Union, right? He is put in prison, but he's eventually pardoned and, and amnestied or, or whatever it is. So uh, th- that execution is rare. But Benito Juarez, is, as we said, um, is made of stern stuff. Now, this conflict in Mexico has been raging um, almost without uh, interval since 1858. So that's nearly 10 years. And it's not the, the fight is not with Maximilian. Um, although, I mean, at this stage, of course, it is. But it hadn't begun with Maximilian. It had been with the Conservative Party. Remember, it was defeated in civil war in 1861. And so the French sort of pure, poured gasoline on, onto the burning embers of this conflict, which then flared up again. Um, and, you know, tens of thousands of Mexicans have been killed. And Benito Juarez wants to end that conservative um, that, that, that conservative resistance to his legitimacy, I suppose, is the way of saying it. And, of course, we focus on Maximilian, uh, but he's executed alongside two other men, Miguel Miramon and uh, Tomás Mejía. And these are both leaders of the Conservative Party representing different strands. Miramont, the, the, the sort of Creole landed aristocracy uh, descendants of Spaniards. Uh, Mejia, who is uh, another indigenous peoples of, of Mexico, but that deep strand of pious um, rural conservatism based on Catholicism. And so you essentially, and, and Maxman, of course, representing Europe and European monarchy and foreign intervention. And so it is an incredibly um, determined attempt to put an end to that kind of resistance, and I suppose uh, also to kind of offer, you know, serve as a warning to other yeah European princelings who may be tempted to yes <laughs> pop over and have a crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that monarchy, the idea of monarchy, had been it had just been bubbling below the surface yeah. in Mexico from the eighteen forties onwards. So it's this is this is what happens if you try and set up a monarchy in Mexico. So Ed, he 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 get together with the two conservatives gets. Hauled in front of a firing squad, they get shot. He's not wearing a sombrero, no. as Mane shows him wearing. Um, his his body is treated quite disrespectfully, isn't it? Uh, they don't follow court etiquette. They they keep the body in Mexico City, and then after the negotiations, it goes back to uh, mm. 
to, to, to Vienna. And it, they it don't follow court there. etiquette. Um, yeah. And she's worth pointing out that Maximilian wrote an emergency court etiquette to be observed during siege, uh, siege warfare conditions, <laughs> so by artillery's raining down. So, exactly. So, so he always important. had. Uh, he always he always had an eye for, for etiquette, um, which is not which is not followed as you say after his death. So the body's embalmed. The idea it will be sent back to Vienna. Uh, Benito Juarez tries to use it as diplomatic leverage, essentially, to get Franz Joseph to recognise the Mexican Republic. Because by doing what by executing Maximilian, uh, Mexico does become something of a rogue state in European eyes for a good um, yeah. ten, 10 years or so before any European court actually recognises the Mexican Republic. Um, and so the body is it's you know, it's not treated well. It's kept in Mexico City in in, in rather insalubrious conditions, um, and it's eventually sent back. Uh, I think it's November eighteen sixty seven, so a good few months after the execution. So you, your book is the last emperor of Mexico. Uh, we've already said yet, but of course <laughs> you know I, the likelihood that there'll be another emperor of Mexico is, is, is fairly low. Uh, it's so Mexico is a republic to this day. Um, I, th- I think we should end just by asking um, a question from Thomas Henselik, which I was wondering as well. Um, is there still any remembrance of Maximilian amongst contemporary Mexicans or has the episode been utterly forgotten? And what role does this episode play in in the, 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 the historical memory of Mexico? It's, no, it's not been forgotten at all. Um, but of course, the, the celebration there is, is Benito Juarez and all things like Cinco de Mayo. So if you fly into Mexico City, you fly into Benito Juarez Airport. The role that it plays in Mexico uh, in terms of its history is a foundational moment. Independence in the 19th century was contested. And depending on who you spoke to, they'll tell you a different story and, and about different heroes. The story of Benito Juarez's triumph over the forces of European imperialism, monarchy and sort of, um, reactionary Catholic conservatism becomes one that most Mexicans, if not all, are able to, to, to rally behind. And so it has a, a unique place in Mexican history and therefore the story is well known. In terms of Maximilian's legacy, um, it becomes... Quite, it does become quite romanticised, as you can imagine, um, with you know, with Carlotta and the court, and it's because it, as you say, it's so exotic and so almost out of time, even in mm. the eighteen sixties, that there it does become the focus of quite a lot of, of literature uh, and and film and, and things like that. So he's 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 remembered very much as being on the wrong side of history, uh, and Benito Juarez as being on the right side. Um, but there is an element as well to, that, his, that his character does shine through in some of the some some of the things that he that he's sort of naive and unwelcome, but not perhaps irredeemable in, in of himself. I think is probably now, how now he talking of irredeemable. Maybe we should end with the villain of the story because I mean he doesn't have long left himself, does he? Napoleon the Third. It looks like he sent this man to his doom and basically got away with it. But I mean his own imperial ambitions are about about to collapse in ashes around him, aren't they? In what eighteen seventy seventy one. Well, one of Maximilian's um, last um, wishes, which he was that if he did, if he was able to go into exile, he would enrol in the Prussian army and fight <laughs> against the French. Um, and of course, that's exactly uh, what happens. Well, except for the fact that he can't enrol in it. So he would have been delighted uh, when Prussian troops streamed across the French border and um, and um, Napoleon III, who's a, who is, you know, sort of ironically trapped in a much larger version of what happened to Maximilian. Um, he gets away, doesn't he, and ends up in Chiselhurst. Well, he very sensibly abdicates. Um, <laughs> yes. He says, yeah. ah, I think the game might be up. And, and Ed, you are, you are currently, I think, writing a, a book about Napoleon III, which, um, based on the evidence of your, your wonderful book on Maximilian, um, is going to be so so worth reading. I guess kind of grimly funny, um, as in so many ways you, this book is. Uh, can't thank you enough. Uh, it's been an absolute tour de force. And just to reiterate, Edward Shawcross, The Last Emperor of Mexico, fantastic book. Rush out and buy it. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. We should say, uh, I guess, adios. Adios and au revoir. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.